Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us, and so it's recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. You can check our show notes to see where the movie is currently available. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's up, movie fans? Yeah, welcome to another episode, and uh, we're pretty excited about this one. This is a very interesting movie, and uh, a little a little bit more obscure, I'd say, than some of the ones that we've done so far, and uh, some of the ones that we're going to do. Would you agree, Ted? Yeah, yeah, maybe a little far off the beaten path, but I think it's still within our territory of, you know, trying to get people into movies that maybe they haven't seen yet. Definitely. This is this is one that I don't hear brought up a lot, and it's one that I put off watching myself for a while. Yeah. Uh, so the movie, which I don't think we've said the name yet, is Cretia. It's a 2015 family drama about a recovering addict and alcoholic in her 60s attempting to reconnect with her family over Thanksgiving. Directed by Trey Edward Schultz, Cretia stars his real-life aunt, Cretia Fairchild, in the eponymous lead role and was produced on a crowdsourced shoestring budget. It's usually these kinds of movies that I see as potentially being a, a dramatic watch and something that maybe I push to the side until I feel the right mood to watch it in. Mm-hmm. But this is one that I was able to get on really early, and I'm so happy that it was recommended to me and that I was just on a very heavy A24 kick at the time of this release. Mm-hmm. This is right in their wheelhouse. I mean, they didn't they didn't produce it, as I understand it. They would have they would have bought it from a festival. Correct. Um, but you log it onto that list of movies that you, I think, marginalize as being very art house, or you know that they got a bunch of awards and they got a lot of acclaim, or they were made on not a lot of money, but they might feel like a chore in concept. And like so many of these movies, I'm sorry that I put it off for so long. It's really, it's punching above its weight, it's doing a lot with very little, and uh, there's lots to talk about, so we can dive right in. Why don't you tell us about Schultz, uh, Taylor? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a guy who, as soon as I saw this movie, I had to look up pretty much everything about him. As an aspiring young filmmaker myself, Schultz was someone who really sets the standard very high for people trying to make low-budget movies. This is, like, I don't think we need to get into all the awards that this film and that Schultz himself won, but basically they went into South by Southwest first and won both the Grand Jury and Audience Awards for Cretia, which is a huge deal, especially for a Texas filmmaker like Schultz. Yeah. Then they got into Cannes. They won, or they were nominated for the grand prize there as well and went on to a ton of future awards all throughout the States and all over the world, actually. The noteworthy takeaway is how many times he won Best First Film for a director, mm-hmm. and that happened at least four or five times based on the list I'm looking at right now, including wins at Austin, uh, Cannes, Detroit, and New York. Yeah, it, it really can't be overstated how hard this film hit at the festival level. Just award after award and accolade after accolade. And as we had mentioned, it was made for next to nothing. So a little background on the production itself. So the first time he tried to make it as a feature, uh, it didn't quite work out. I don't think that they got the coverage or the content that they needed. And it ended up as a short, uh, which was made for about $7,000. And then using that short... Uh, They launched a Kickstarter, they raised around $14,000 and filmed this in their family home over the course of of less than a week, Um, if not just a long weekend. I think Uh, it might have been a week of production. Yeah. 
Trey worked with most of his family members. It's based on a story inspired by family members, and it was filmed right. at, at family members' homes. And I believe the, it was filmed at his mother's house, maybe, it, and it got the sense that it might have been his own house? Yeah, that's that's my understanding. It's either his house or his parents' house, but even possibly the one that he grew up in. So it's getting things for free, obviously, where he can, but also recognizing assets and talent where it lies, especially for something as um, intimate and personal as this. Yeah, and you know the term micro budget gets thrown around pretty often with indie movies. Mm. This is a legitimate micro budget. I don't know what our listeners' experience of festival circuits are, but a micro budget film is usually considered somewhere under like a hundred grand. Yeah. <laughs> so, so micro budget is a term that's pretty loose. Mm-hmm. But this movie is was. I think what what was this made for seven or 14 14 14 grand so it's as you were saying like the scale of what qualifies a budget as being small or large is maybe a little bit off for the regular viewer in terms of the movie industry but this was made for like pocket change essentially essentially yes and that that's just such an achievement for what this movie was able to go on and do and also like look at the career he's been able to spark up just because he made a movie with his family he went on to direct the movie it comes at night mm-hmm. with a couple like pretty major stars and then yeah. he went on and I haven't actually seen his third feature Waves but apparently it went on to a bunch of festival success as well and is apparently it's a pretty strong film as well. Yeah, so I mean even before we launch into the scene that we're talking about if you're going to take any lesson away from from Schultz it's definitely um be resourceful. If you're going to make a story about people and if it's based about people that you know, maybe those people you know are good enough to play those roles. Um, yeah, I mean, work with what you got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not maybe not everybody has a superstar actor as an aunt, but I think that his direction is really what shines through the most in this mm-hmm. production. It's probably what got him the future jobs that he was able to land because this is such a singular vision in terms of its direction, and that can't be overstated in anything we talk about in this podcast either. Like. It's rare to see such a distinct vision in a first film. Yeah, to come out of the gate and have have this kind of clarity, right? Like you can tell that the same person was involved with all aspects of it. In some of the interviews that we watched in the research for this, he talked a lot about his editing process as well. He was very involved with that. And you, you can see you can see his fingerprints on the whole thing, and it's not just because it's about something personal to him and about his family, but in terms of being a an artist and and someone in control of the product. It's just, it's got a direct, thick black line drawn through it from one end to the next. Absolutely. Schultz is clearly in the zone while making this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we I think we should say, too, that um, we're talking a lot about, like, look at what you can do with this little money and, and, and things like that. And uh, I think it might be easy to, on paper, assume that, oh, it's a family drama. It's like all those other family drama movies, a bunch of people yelling at each other. You have some catharsis at the end. That's really not what this is at all. Um, no, and, no, it's and, different. Yeah, as we'll talk about, um, it's really it's family drama as horror, and uh, I think a great way to break into that idea is that uh, Schultz himself refers to his movies as pure exorcism. He takes some personal demon or some painful memory or idea, and he explores them and he exposes them on film. And it really feels like that when you watch this movie. It feels. Like, he has something to say, and he's using all these personal people and things in the movie to craft this exorcism. 
Yeah, yeah, it's this weird, uh, I, I don't know if weird is the right term, but it's a striking example of one part exorcism and exposure and examination, and the rest of it almost appears to be like therapy. And uh, I know that's, that's making right. a number of assumptions about uh, Schultz's uh, connection to his work, but I'd say even as a viewer, when you're watching this, you cannot help but draw parallels in whatever scale to your family, whether you come from a really functional family or from a very dysfunctional one. Uh, you know, it's up to our maybe our viewers to see how hard this impacts them on a personal level, but I know just watching this movie, it's quite a visceral experience and can't wait to get into it more. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, I mean, I think we can hop right into the scene then. I think we've uh, we've teased the viewers enough by talking yeah. about it, big picture. Yeah, I think... Yeah, we're 10 minutes in here, and (laughs) we should probably get to the scene. Yeah. So, uh, as always, we're going to start with the tagline. The tagline was a little obscured for this movie, but the tagline we're going with, though, is, I want to be in your life. I want to be close to you. And this is, of course, a line from the central character, Cretia. Mm -hmm. Um, And our scene today, this is (laughs) one of the rare instances I think that we will be discussing a climactic scene of a movie so we do want to emphasize a spoiler alert for this particular episode highly highly recommend that you watch this movie we'll tell you where to find the movie in our show notes so just check there even if you're still listening now and you sort of got this nice overview about Schultz and what the movie does um, stop listening right now go rent it on Amazon or or find it somewhere else and then come back and, and join us for the discussion that's right we'll be here so now we can get into, I guess, the scene itself. Mm-hmm. The scene stars Cretia Fairchild as Cretia, of course, Robin Fairchild as Robin, Bill Wise, who's the only actor actually hired for the film, mm-hmm. who plays the character Doyle, and uh, Trey Edward Schultz himself as Trey. After a series of seemingly traumatic encounters with her mother and Trey, Cretia relapses, unceremoniously uncorking a bottle of wine with a pair of scissors in her bathroom. She guzzles back the bottle, entering an almost dreamlike euphoric state. Returning to her family downstairs for the final dinner preparations, Cretia attempts to remove the giant family-sized Thanksgiving turkey from the oven. Her hands tremble, and the turkey falls to the floor, creating an enormous mess and ruining the family dinner. Yeah, this is, uh, again, as, as he said, normally we don't really want to examine the critical, the high point of the movie scene, or, or the, the scene on which the movie really pivots, but... Especially given how how unseen this movie appears to be, we thought it was good to to look at this one because there's a lot to dig into this scene in terms of how it operates in the movie, how it uses point of view, how it's produced, and how it uses uh, the trappings of the horror genre to make the stakes even higher here in that Cretia is relapsing, she started drinking again, and there's a lot at stake here because it's an American Thanksgiving dinner on Thanksgiving weekend and the turkey is the focal point of that. So there's a lot to be lost and a lot is lost in the course of this scene. Yeah, and you know there, throughout the movie there's a good buildup of Cretia actually taking care and maintaining and preparing this turkey so this is also like something that she's personally worked on throughout the course of the film all well in the background of like the family drama and I guess there's just all the family stuff going on. She just kind of sits in the background preparing this turkey. It's important to understand that, yeah, over the course of the movie leading up so far, there's been all these attempts by Cretia to reconnect with her family, whether it's uh, it's Trey himself or her mother who comes to visit. Um, it's just one scene after another where you either have people who are talking on a very, very basic surface level small talk, 
or they're diving into the reasons why Kreisha hasn't been around um, for the past right. however many years. And it slowly begins to show you how much this weekend uh, matters to Kreisha, how much is riding on it, her getting back in her family's lives, reconnecting with the people that are really important to her, and all the stress that's going on uh, in that process. More than once leading up to this scene, she does go back to... She has a private bathroom in the family house. She's she's in a guest room. And she goes in there to sort of decompress. And she has a bunch of pill bottles in a locked box uh, to sort of keep her level. But she hasn't, she hasn't had anything to drink so far. And this is really the breaking point. And uh, I, I'm not sure how you want to dive into the scene, but we could start with the horror aspects. What do you think, Taylor? Yeah, I think that's a good way to jump into it. That's probably one of the biggest takeaways I had from watching this movie shortly after it came out and was made available to watch. Mm-hmm. This is one of the most haunting scenes probably that I've seen in the past decade just because of how much this one scene has stuck with me. Mm-hmm. It's the scene that I continuously come back to and it's because it is so personal and yet so horrifying. And now that I've rewatched this movie, there's mm-hmm. a lot of influences that I see on other contemporary horror directors, specifically Ari Aster's Hereditary seems yeah. to take a lot from what Schultz is doing in this movie, especially the scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. You, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, Ari Aster's kind of like uh, set his stake by examining interpersonal problems with horror. Like Hereditary was a lot about family drama like this, but not like this. And Midsummer was about basically the horror of a breakup um, in, is, is one way to reduce it down. Um, and and many, many people do suggest that the strongest use of horror is metaphor. So is there even metaphor happening in this film? Or is it just a way of conducting and directing this movie in a way that uses horror tropes to kind of convey something inside Schultz? I think it's definitely the latter. I think, especially you watch this movie as a whole, and leading up to this scene and after this scene, Schultz directs them and has them shot uh, to be very realistic. There right. aren't like there are some some one shots and stuff like that, but there's no cranes, there's no stylization. Um, everything is at normal speed, and then everything shifts in this scene when Kreisha starts drinking again. Again, there's this whole sequence where she steals a wine bottle from downstairs, takes it up to her private bathroom, punches the cork into it with a pair of scissors, and pretty much just downs the entire bottle. Uh, you have a number of stylized choices going on. The lighting becomes incredibly different. It's almost it's almost like a performance. There's very there's like stage lighting almost, which allows for these really strong shadows. They use Dutch angles to highlight these very critical moments that we'll talk about in a little bit. And there's lots of use of slow mo and anticipation, which are obviously big staples of horror going back decades. But I don't think any of it's metaphorical. I think. It's number one saying this is you're in the head of a person who is drunk and is finally drunk again. So you get the smoothness and stuff like that of right. their perspective. They're floating around the room in the crowd. And also just, you know how big of a uh, emergency this is because you see her go through this and you're just waiting for something to go wrong. And of course, what goes wrong is just sort of the the, the centerpiece of the American Thanksgiving. The turkey uh, is is the victim. That's right. Yeah, the visual language of the movie changes entirely during this scene, and it really does make you zone in to what's happening. I I can only speak for myself when watching mm-hmm. this movie. I was actually going to ask you about your thoughts on Kreisha the character, but 
for me, she generates an enormous amount of sympathy throughout the film, or empathy maybe. But at this point, everything about her becomes transparent and you understand who this person is. And then it becomes a really conflicted sense of empathy as she kind of self-destructs in front of her whole family, Mm -hmm. ruining all this hard work that she's kind of put in to be sober and show up for her family gathering. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Over the course of the the first act, act and a half of the movie, there are points where you're kind of frustrated with Kreecha, I'd say. Um, She's a little abrasive and things like that, but all these things that I think would be understandable. But as you see her go scene by scene, hitting these roadblocks with people who she wants to know more, she wants to know again, and she wants to be in their lives and vice versa. You see that scene after scene after scene, and yeah, you really do start to feel for her. And then when you see her get this bottle out, it's just, you're just kind of trapped watching a person self-destruct. And then, that's a good way you know, to put it. again, it goes into slow-mo, the lighting becomes elevated. I think what you said about the lighting earlier, about it being almost like a stage production, that's mm-hmm. almost, it's almost like the key lighting becomes more enhanced. Yeah. And there's no fill light. I think you're going to discuss the score a lot more, but mm-hmm. the score also kicks in with the live performative aspect. Yeah. There's all this there's all this language that points to this being like her moment on stage in front of her family. And I think that all ties back into this idea of what we find most horrifying about ourselves. The way yeah. the way that the scene makes you feel makes an embarrassing moment at a family dinner into a horror story. Yeah, it's really like you're you're watching someone being one breath away from their worst fear being realized. And I don't know if you're sure of it, but I just, I feel like when you're in the movie and you're locked in, you're like, it is going to happen. How and when is it going to happen? Like, is uh, is it necessary that she's going to ruin the turkey or is it that she's going to say the wrong thing? Or is she just, are we going to cut out of this um, internal perspective of Kreisha and you'll see her stumbling around and mumbling? Like, how's it going to happen? How am I going to have to watch this person live their nightmare and and Schultz just puts you right in her mindset it's incredibly effective with an with an yeah yeah I I feel that you want to get out of there like you you as a viewer want to escape this perspective Mm. or all these perspective shots you don't want to be inside Kreisha's head right now because it's truly what is horrifying about gatherings and I'm not saying you need to be someone who relapses in front of their family to understand her emotions either I think all of it is made incredibly relatable mm-hmm. through this insular POV kind of camera work. You really see what she's focusing on and how those different elements impact her mental state. Yeah. When she comes down the stairs, the first shot is kind of her watching Trey cross the room in a really long mm-hmm. uh, 180 degree kind of pan shot. Yeah. Then you see her mother. You see Trey then talk to his like pseudo parents. Mm-hmm. Then you see her relapse. So yeah, I think we can shift into the the qualities where um, it 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 takes on Kreisha's POV throughout this entire sequence. The entire movie itself is really um, in Kreisha's POV, but this sequence puts you basically right behind her eyes without actually being a first person camera shot. Yeah, um, that's a, that's important to note. Yeah, there are lots of shots of Kreisha, but it does. Without it being like the more gimmicky, shaky cam first person shot, there are a bunch of shots when she's down in the kitchen after she's gotten drunk where you're gliding through these three or four out of focus layers of the family because there's like eight or nine people in this kitchen, right? They're all waiting. Yeah, they're all just. Yeah, they're having drinks. The the turkey's going to be done soon. And 
that your camera's gliding through, like I think you would think you were when you're feeling like Cresha. Everything's smoother. There's soft focus because your eyes aren't focusing as well. Mm-hmm. And it is keeping a focus on Trey because that character is very important to Cresha's character, which there's more of that in the movie as a whole, which I don't think we need to dwell on too much. But another another point that brings up the horror tropes and reinforces Cresha's point of view is when Trey's however you put it, his um, his adopted parents are really close to him. Like one of them, I think they like, they, yeah. like, they like brush his head or put a hand on his shoulder. You get a Dutch angle, which is one of the most fundamental and basic horror tools, right? It, it puts you Just off kilter. to convey that sense of the world being off. Yeah, and, it, and it's that. And then you also get another Dutch angle with the turkey. And, yes. um, it, that one's really interesting because it like simulates the motion of her like tipping the pan with the turkey. Yeah. In it. And, yeah, I, and I, that, I really love that shot. Yeah. The, the process of the turkey coming out is just like an expert build of anticipation. You've got the, the oven door comes down and there are these big, and the, the, the yeah. oven lights are behind the turkey and it's so not spooky, but, um, unnerving, I'd say. Yeah. And especially just as a, a change from the visual quality of the rest of the movie. It's so imposing, and you see how important this turkey is. She's pulling it out. You've got the Dutch angle, and then you see it's in like a roasting pan, and all the juices are in the bottom, and they're sloshing around, and they're hitting the sides. She just has to like basically pivot and get yeah. from the, get from the oven to the counter. Motion. It shouldn't be that much, and it's such a journey. Like it, it almost like you, you have a telescoping presentation of time as it goes on, right? Because like she goes yeah. down the hallway, she gets down the stairs, she's walking around, she's seeing everybody, she sees Kinda Trey. Like time is standing still. Yeah, and then and then you get to the turkey, and it's like the last minute of this sequence almost is just the turkey coming out, and then almost makes it to the counter, and then you just have you have the shot. It's just on the floor, and you see what looks like gallons and gallons of this roasting fluid and juices hitting <laughs> the floor juice. before the before the turkey joins it. And then I think it just it hard cuts back into reality, right? Yes, it's it's the music stops and it's mm-hmm. a hard cut right back into the real audio of the scenario, and it's very jarring when it happens. You kind I guess it's kind of expected in mm-hmm. that second that it will happen. Yeah, but. It's really shocking, and it's what allows you to kind of escape Kreisha's perspective, but it's when you don't want to escape. It's like, oh, please don't let me back into that world of like, this family where everyone's going to be yelling and freaking out. And they, they do. Like, they immediately, like, some of the people are crying because their dinner yeah. is ruined and because they know that Kreisha has has started drinking again. Bill Doyle, who does so much with so little in this movie, is just so nasty in the fallout. He's you mean la- the, char- he's- the character Doyle? Uh, uh, Doyle, sorry, Bill Wise plays Doyle. Like, you cut to the reality, and Doyle is laughing, and he's making jokes, like, multiple jokes, one after another, but, like... Yeah, you like, know, grab get, me a leg off that thing yeah, while it's yeah. still or hot. Like, like, there's... it. Don't worry about what we're gonna eat. I can tell you what we're not gonna eat. It's all in that garbage can as they're, like, trying to scoop up the juices. It's yeah. just... It's, uh... It, it's painful. Um, yeah, it's, he is very effective character yeah and and again like you know this this entire discussion really points back to one of the key qualities i'd say in a capable director is they can get you to feel what they want you to feel there's an intent and it happens and this kind of thing where like you know people say spielberg is the master of that to the extent that other people criticize him say he's manipulative (laughs) i i I personally think that's the point of movies you are being manipulated but for schultz of course yeah for schultz to do this right out of the gate i think 
he just he puts you into this scene where you're just in this person's head and you feel exactly what they feel you know exactly what's at stake and you you know in your heart that it's going to happen there's no way out of this you just mm-hmm. you have to walk into this accident with your eyes open yeah for for as much as you want something good to happen for Kreisha, there's such a sense of loss and hopelessness that you don't expect her character to make it out of this scenario mm-hmm. on good footing and she doesn't no no like people start interrogating her about drinking and she's it's and it, there there isn't even any there's no there's no gracefulness to it there's no, no it's there's no chance that like she can pull something off she's trying to accuse bill wise's character of being the one who is drinking from that wine bottle that was in her mm-hmm. bathroom and like it's not even like people for a second are like oh he drinks too they're like no, like, you obviously did this. You obviously ruined this evening. You obviously ruined your chance to to be in our family's lives. And yeah. then you have, like, the final act of the movie. Because this happens what, around 50 minutes in, and, and what's the movie, around 90 minutes? Yeah, it, well, it's 80 minutes, actually. Eight, okay, yeah. So there's still, there's a lot of fallout that, that you have to play with. There's a lot of interesting stuff that we, we won't go into in detail, but this really you build up to this scene the scene has its own internal build up to the turkey and then it's just fallout you have to live in it for the for the remainder of the movie so i guess one other thing i did want to mention is we kind of just touched on it a little bit with the camera movement Mm -hmm. but one thing that was really interesting from schultz's interviews that we we were watching in preparation for this podcast is that he called it playful chaos Mm -hmm. i think that's a really excellent term for how this movie makes you feel with its camera work because mm-hmm. like we mentioned it's not shaky camera like as in like as a shoulder mounted camera where it's like bobbling around following you documentary style yeah it's not trying to convey that sense of realism it's really not it's this smooth slow moving camera that makes all these wild motions throughout the house throughout the movie it's like the camera has a mind of its own which is why his director style kind of gets compared to like Cassavetes. Mm-hmm it's because that camera seems to have a mind of its own and kind of follows whatever it's going to follow, everything kind of being important. And then in this scene, it kind of just zones in just to a very singular perspective. Yeah, I I think it's easy to look at um, ensemble scenes and staging like this and trying to achieve playful chaos. And from the outside looking in, you can assume that like, oh, well, you just have everyone improvise like small talk with one another and we'll move the camera around and that's it. But as soon as you you look into interviews with these directors or if you have direct experience like you would in doing even small ensemble scenes and staging, it's Mm. incredibly complex. There are so many moving parts. Everyone has to hit their marks. Everyone has to be in the right places. Everything has to be lit properly. If you check um, in our show notes, we'll put a link to a YouTube video. Uh, They did an anatomy of a scene. It's It's a series that a24 or somebody puts out i think it's a24 yeah yeah where they just have a director take one scene and talk about it and he does talk about his ensemble staging and direction in an earlier scene in the movie which is you get like a big 360 of the kitchen in the living room and you've got nine characters all doing different things they're prepping the turkey they're getting laundry they're watching a football game they're drinking that's right and he, he talks about like how long you have to rehearse that kind of thing for everyone to be where they're supposed to be including himself he was behind the that's camera right. for part of it and then he appears in front of the camera as his character it's uh it's it's not easy <laughs> yeah and remember this is a non-professional cast these are non-professional actors who have to hit marks who have to come up with 
banter. Probably like apparently this movie was thirty percent improvised, so these non-professional actors are doing a lot of heavy lifting while hitting their marks, while worrying about where the camera is going to be moving, while following the direction of one of the younger members of the family, which is just amazing to me that all this comes together in such a organized and intentional way. Yeah, it's it, yeah, it's 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 playful chaos, organized chaos. There there is an art to this. Um, and, and part of that art is making it look like it just happened. And I think that's definitely something that they, that they pull off in this movie. Um, yeah, it feels very grounded. You can relate to this movie without being a traditional American family that celebrates things like this on Thanksgiving. You can really bond with a lot of what's happening. Yeah. And, and out of interest in, in part of my research leading up to this movie, I Googled for like, you know, top dysfunctional family movies, top families, fighting movies, things like that. And almost all of them like you know people point out like uh, little miss sunshine the family stone uh Mm. and like all like half the christmas movies you can think of people will count as dysfunctional uh family movies that's Uh, right christmas story christmas vacation (laughs) uh but largely like i think the things to draw away from from these ideas are that almost all of these movies are treated as comedies they have families fighting for the comedic effect and your catharsis is that you know we're all the same we all fight but in the end, we're still a family together. And the other thing is that I think even just in my memory of how people film these sequences with these families, it's a lot of cutting back and forth. It's a like over the shoulder, one shot, two shot, and very simple. And I think it it, it yeah, makes presented equally. Yeah, and I think it makes it appear way more um, um, uh, produced and intentional. And the things that, that Schultz, and in, he's not the first to do this by any means, but I think he very effectively creates his chaos by letting the camera do its own thing, essentially. And he's never focusing on one conversation. There's always something going off in the background. There's almost always more than one layer in the mm-hmm. screen. You'll have one conversation in uh, that you're focused on, but there's something in the background, or there's even something in the foreground, creates a very complex and uh, and and layered uh, family environment, which is is what it would be when you have that many people over for a dinner. Yeah, you know, there's not many comparables to this level of intricacy in terms of creating that grounded, real world ensemble feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that actually just came to mind though is like some of the early work by Jean Renoir, uh, who did a movie called Rules of the Game. Okay. Uh, in, in the in the 1930s, I believe, but that that movie set the standard for deep focus photography with so many character interactions happening behind one another, and you kind of had to, as a viewer, pick your conversation that you were listening in on. Yeah, and that that's kind of like the same vibe you get with this movie. That now Renoir, what, what he was doing was a little bit more sophisticated in terms of like camera stability and you know using cranes and things like that, a lot mm-hmm. bigger budget. Yeah, but well, Grisha I... very much tries to copy that. Uh, chaotic ensemble feel mm-hmm. and I think it pulls it off and obviously it did it with almost no money like however many cameras one or one or two a couple lenses and and just working in that very familiar environment you've got the the open kitchen in the living room mm-hmm. and and basically it's 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 filmed there there's a little bit in the in the backyard and then Kreisha's room and private bathroom are very important locations as well but and that's about it squeezes it. a lot out of that kitchen in yeah, terms it, that, of... that's really all the all, that's all the settings. Yeah, and uh, kind of speaking of the budget, there, they were able to get a Nina Simone song, and uh, I know you kind of wanted to touch on that. So yeah, maybe jump into that. And I mean, based on 
research that I've done and other guys, like especially the guys who do uh, the Canadian TV show, Nirvana, the band, the show, who do everything for as little money as possible. They talked about in interviews how the thing that they want to spend money on is music because they can really drive a point home or they can have a good joke. But the music ends up being 70% of their budget. So I, I can't imagine how much of their $14,000 went towards getting the song Just In Time by Nina Simone uh, for this sequence in Cretia. It is, as far, as far as I can remember, it's the only needle drop in the movie. The rest of the movie is scored by Brian McComber, who is yeah. uh, from the Dirty Projectors. If you haven't listened to their stuff, uh, Biddy Orca is a great album. But I think it's it's a very well-timed, well-used piece of music. I think it's it's also the right time to make the switch from the score. The score is fantastic. It's it's very multifaceted and it's very um, frenetic and it all sort of relates back to whatever Kreisha's feeling at any given moment. But to have a needle drop when, when she decides to start drinking again. And there yeah. are a couple qualities of this song, because again, you could pick so many different songs for being like someone is drunk again, somebody is trying to do something important. Like there's tons of songs that could apply to this, but there's a couple reasons why Just In Time is so applicable. Yeah, just be- before you die fully. Oh yeah, 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 go I ahead. Think, I think that the way that it cuts from one of the only silent sequences of the film, mm-hmm. there it's about like a minute of silence before the scene starts. And that's really impactful because there's not a lot of unscored moments in the film up to this point. It's almost all had some kind of ambient score going. Mm-hmm. And then it's a bit of silence, and then we get this needle drop, and then we cut out to silence after the after the song cuts out when the turkey drops. Yeah. So I think there's some serious impact from bringing in the song and cutting it out that way. Yeah. And then, like you said, this song kind of matches the frenetic energy. At least the intro of the song really matches the frenetic energy that the rest of mm-hmm. the score is kind of using. Yeah. So... I think that the song like completely blended in despite the fact that it's a Nina Simone song in a micro indie movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, like this is Schultz using every tool available to him. The the idea yeah. that in this scene you would change the way you film it, you would change the way you light it, and you change the way you score it because you're letting people know this scene is important, this scene is different than the rest of the movie. You're getting into Kreisha's head and uh, the song Just In Time, it's a live performance recording. So you have audience clapping at the beginning and at the end and after i think there's a piano solo over yeah. the bridge and, so you have people the, clapping and uh, go the ahead applause starts right when she gets the cork through the bottle like mm-hmm. right as soon as the cork slides into the bottle yeah. and the applause starts almost like it's cheering her on to start drinking there yeah well you get yeah you get this idea that internally this is any form of addict situation or, or any dependency this is what you've wanted and now you've got it so you know, uh, give yourself a big hand and get going. And then also the idea that the song is a performance and Kreisha is performing. She's going That's downstairs right. and the, you do get some shots of her face in the sequence. It's not all outward looking. And the shots of her face, she looks kind of suave, I'd say, not reading into it too far. She's the got first a, shot for sure. Yeah, yeah she's she got a down. relaxed smile on her face. And, mm-hmm. and I think she she's feeling right. She's feeling better than she has the full weekend. And she's ready to go down, take out the turkey, and, and just succeed, right? She's going to win. Yeah, it feels almost like it's going to be that triumphant moment. Mm-hmm. But obviously, like, that goes awry pretty quickly. And then you dive into a song a little bit more, and you realize that it's kind of a a song that is dealing with these exact themes as well. So, yeah, yeah, so just in time as the as the title suggests is that there's something at stake. There was something 
about to be lost and just in time. Nina is singing to, you know, a, a paramour, someone important to her. Someone found her just in time. She had nothing left. She was at the end of her rope, but she was saved. And the song crescendos, it has this really driving left-hand piano chord, just da, 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 which I think lends itself to the scene. It, it keeps totally. it pressing forward and builds a little bit of anticipation working hand-in-hand with the way the scene looks. Well, it is a chaotic song with mm-hmm. a steady rhythm. Yeah, at the upper end, you've got jazz. So you do have, you have soloing, you have people improvising, yeah. which obviously... Now, on a very surface level, plays right into the way that this movie is produced and the way exactly. these people are acting. And the way that Kreech is acting. She's floating around, she's she's making one decision to the next, and the song is building, and it crescendos with Nina Simone saying, you changed me, you changed me, you changed me. And it really, I think, points directly to the core relationship in this movie, which is between Kreesha and Trey. Kreesha's looking for a connection with someone outside of herself. She's done what she could to make herself better, to heal. She talks about this with other characters in the movie, about sort of her her healing journey. But in the end, it's going to come down to someone other than her. Just like with Nia Simone, someone saved her. And um, and she's looking for that someone that doesn't, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, you know, uh, arguably, depending on how you want to interpret it, not because her family cuts her off or doesn't give her a chance, but because she, you know, she goes off book, she improvises, she gives in and, and she drinks that wine and it ends up ruining the dinner, ruining the weekend and, and ruining her chance. Yeah, and you really feel that by the end of the scene that it's like over and that she's not going to get another shot at this pretty much. Now, one one really interesting takeaway from dissecting this scene is that the record of the Nina Simone song is actually diegetic. Yeah, they show you it spinning at one point, right? And Trey, the son, puts it on. It's like the first action of the scene when she comes down the stairs. He's actually putting the record on Mm -hmm. in the kitchen. So the fact that it kind of plays, it starts out as this this non-diegetic applause for Kreisha as she consumes this bottle of wine Mm -hmm. and ends up being some piece of diegetic music that her estranged son, Trey, is actually putting on for them all downstairs. I think all that, like, just has a beautiful uh, synergy to it. Yeah, and it, and it is important to note, yeah, it is presented as diegetic, so it's not in her head, but it is, how do you want to say? Uh, of, of the film it's, world. It's, it's produced um, non-diegetically. It, you don't hear dialogue, you don't hear sound effects or foley or anything, you only hear the song. It's shown diegetically, but it's not heard diegetically. Correct. It's, it's very loud, it, it fills the sonic space of the movie at the time. But uh, yeah. that, it, that is a good point, that you do have the spinning record and Trey puts it on. And it is clearly the Nina Simone album. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, once the turkey falls, like, it's it's the it's the cadence, it's the wrap-up of the piece. Turkey mm-hmm. falls and hits the floor, and then you're right back to Brian McCumber's score with very conventional horror music. Like, nothing against yes. him. I think it's, it's well-chosen and it's well-directed to just go to your sort of scary violins and your 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 tones that are that are crescendoing really fast and little bright hits of things it's all off kilter and it's the things that you recognize as saying this is scary this is traumatizing and and that all ties together this scene analysis really nicely actually we're coming full circle back to the idea of how this scene presents this idea of horror without this being a horror movie Mm -hmm. and the score is definitely a big part of that and the fact that it relies on some generic horror score devices mm-hmm. actually, I think, benefits the film a lot by being this familiar 
maybe not as familiar at the time of the release of the movie, but now it's become a very familiar ambient droning sound that kind mm-hmm. of really emphasizes the character's interstate and builds a sense of anxiety, I think, in the audience. Yeah, and I've got some interviews we'll put in the show notes with Brian McCumber where he talks about how nice. they, this was the first film that he scored, and uh, I think he knocked it out of the park, just like everybody involved in this production. And yeah, at every single point with a score, it was supposed to reflect what Cretia was feeling. So sometimes it's more nervous energy, sometimes it's more relaxed when she's sitting outside and, and, and having a cigarette. And in times like this, it's she knows what happened, she knows what she did, and she knows that all is lost. But you know it's coming, and that's what even makes it, I guess that's what makes the anticipation that much more traumatizing to the viewer is that you just know that this character isn't going to come out of this looking good yeah i mean that's one of your core tenets of suspense or horror or anticipation in film anything like that is that a a mystery not knowing what's going to happen is almost never as effective as knowing that something bad will happen it's that whole hitchcock thing about what's more suspenseful a bomb blowing up or you see a bomb ticking underneath the table Right, and this whole scene is when, when's that turkey gonna gonna blow up? Right, I, to, yeah, to really reduce it down. <laughs> it's a, I think that's a fitting metaphor for the scene. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably that probably wraps up our scene analysis. We are hitting yeah. a later mark in our showtime, so maybe we can get to uh, some shout-out scenes from Cretia. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll do mine first. We're both just going to talk about other great performances in it. Yeah, mine true. are there. There's two or three scenes between uh, Cretia and uh, Billy Wise, who plays Doyle. They're sitting out on the back porch. And the scenes, well, clearly are to be considered to be in their own continuity. They're not happening at different times. They're cut so that they come in the film at different times. And the first one is very surface level small talk. And the next one is a little bit deeper, more personal. And the third one is cutting right to the core of their relationship. And Doyle is really letting Cretia know what he thinks of her. And I just think it's this great little journey you can track about this kind of situation where when you start, people are just making jokes to talking about what they're doing. He's talking about how he doesn't like all the dogs they have. And then scene by scene between the two of them, you eventually get to him accusing Cretia of being a terrible person and that she can't just do the things that she's doing, stuff like that. I think it's really effective. And again, I think Billy Wise is money well spent in terms of hiring one of the two actors I think for it or the only actor I think he's the um, only actor they hired and I couldn't agree more these the three sequences between him and Kreisha are probably some of the strongest are definitely the strongest acting in the film uh, I mm-hmm. think that Billy Wise definitely was a, was a big get for this movie mm-hmm. because in these scenes with Kreisha you see him start very funny he's very comedic yeah but still like this very brash, pointed, opinionated man, but very yeah. funny. And then by the third interaction with Kreisha that we see, once again, you said it's all one sequence, but it's split up into three times we get to see we get to see in on it. Mm-hmm. And by the third time, he, I think it ends with him calling her evil incarnate, which is such an impactful line. <laughs> yeah. It just shows you like what's what's underneath the surface in this entire family dynamic. It's yeah, like every everyone's got their bone to pick, and he he's the kind of guy like they very he very effectively sets up his characters being this is the guy who's going to say it like it is. Yes, but um, it takes a little while to break through and get past your small talk. And either either Schultz or McComber in one of the interviews that I read said these scenes were a hundred percent improvised. It's it's That's very amazing. impressive. Yeah, yeah, that the way that those scenes flow is just impressive. 
I can kind of see it now that you say that because yeah. just the way Kreisha is kind of very free form in mm-hmm. those scenes versus some of the other scenes where she's incredibly composed. Yeah. But I think it's a it's a big pat on the back for both those actors and for just the film itself. Like the way that Schultz used his aunt Kreisha as mm-hmm. such a dynamic force in this movie is incredibly interesting and inspiring. Yeah. Uh, and kind of going off that, my shout-out scene, it's a long one-take shot featuring Trey Edward Schultz's actual grandmother, mm-hmm. who in real life suffered from dementia, and they still got her to be in the movie. I guess that in the several times they shot this scene, she said entirely different things, and the characters just had to react to it. Yeah. But it's, it's basically like a one-take shot that slowly zooms in on the grandma interacting with so many of the different family members, including Robin, the mother, and Trey. Mm-hmm. And then when it finally comes to Kreisha's turn, the grandmother ended up saying some staggering things about her own relationship with her own mother that mm-hmm. were not directed by Schultz. They were specifically brought up by the grandmother herself. And the way that the actors, especially Kreisha, worked with that and like, reacted to that was incredibly emotional and mm-hmm. really impressive knowing that it's all improvised. Yeah, it's it, like, especially when you consider uh, Schultz's grandmother's state of mind and how inconsistent it would be one take to another. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in terms of the movie as a whole, that's the lightning in the bottle, I'd say. Um, yes. that, they, that they pulled this off. It's such an effective sequence. The fact that it's a one take just makes you sit with Kreisha's reaction to what the grandmother's saying. And otherwise, the grandmother's not in too much. There is a great shot of her staring at Kreisha after the turkey falls. And it's very like it, that's Ari Aster horror right there. It, it's just it like is, it an is. elderly family member if through through a doorway to another room, just kind of staring you down. And again, that's that's the emotion that we apply to the grandmother because probably Trey wasn't able to direct her to say, like, look look spooky, look judgmental. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just that she's a witness. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have a lot of control over when over the scenes with his grandmother in it, but they all, I think, like, the, there's a couple shots of her kind of interacting with family members throughout the movie, too. Mm-hmm. Those are really nice scenes. I, I, I give this director so much credit for what he was able to do with his own family. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's super impressive. I mean... I think you guys over the past 45 minutes, 50 minutes, however long this is, you will have gotten tired of us saying how impressive Schultz is, <laughs> especially in this production. But we may have just proven that it can be overstated. But uh, if that if that's a takeaway to have, that that's that's the takeaway is, is check out this movie and just see what you can do with so little if you're uh, resourceful, if you know the tools available to you and what you can do with them. And if you can recognize some considerable talent in your family. It's a testament to his skill as a director, how well this movie comes off with what he had at his disposal. And uh, I know we've overstated it plenty throughout this podcast, but it's it's worth watching just to see a very good young director's mind at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward. I haven't watched it yet either, uh, but I'm looking forward to checking out Waves. Very I think soon. we're both going to be watching that soon after this discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so uh, yeah, just to wrap up the show like usual, we're each going to give you a uh, recommendation, something we watched recently and that we think you should watch too. So, uh, Tay, go ahead. So for Canada Film Day, I watched the movie Exotica from 1994, directed by Adam Egoyan. It stars Bruce Greenwood, Elias Kateas, and Don McKellar in a pretty loaded Canadian cast. This is Canadian cinema to a T in my mind. It's a... Uh, it is abnormal, it's kind of disgusting, and 
The locations are stunning. I love the look of this movie. Adam McGoyan has a way of making movies look sterile or cluttered in a weird way that I don't know he his environments look like you don't want to be there but you want to be there it's like a weird dichotomous feeling towards everything in his movies and I think it is a very fitting movie if you're really looking to tackle a critical piece of Canada film we've talked about Elias Kateas I think on our on our Gattaca podcast and uh, how he's just this excellent b-list maybe even c-list actor who just gets into some really cool roles and does a lot with them when he gets them so uh, I'm not going to say too much more about the movie. Just look it up, check it out, and if you think it looks interesting, it pr- you'll probably find it interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it, so I'm definitely going to check that out. I've got it on the list. And uh, yeah, Koteas is always good. Maybe some point down the line, a couple years from now, we can do a little <laughs> Koteas miniseries and uh, dive into yeah. Crash and uh, really, really alienate our audience. But uh, yeah, my uh, recommendation this episode is Ponyo. Uh, mm. Nothing particularly revolutionary. It's a Miyazaki-directed uh, Ghibli movie. And Netflix now, in Canada at least, they have the entire Ghibli library. And, you know, during our lockdown, I was going through and watching ones I hadn't seen, many of which are like, you know, uh, TV movies that they did uh, from earlier in the 90s, uh, way more way more basic animation styles. They're still very impressive. And... I'm recommending Ponyo because I feel like there might be some other people in my position who had seen Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, all the really well-known Ghibli ones. And for a long time, I put off Ponyo because I heard it was just like their take on Little Mermaid. One of the more childish ones, you know, down there with with, uh, my neighbor Totoro. Nothing against (laughs) my neighbor Totoro, but it's something I never really got around to. And then because of all the extra time on my hands... uh, Given the given the current situation, I got into Ponyo, and it's one of the best movie experiences I've had in months. It's so enjoyable. It moves extremely well. It's like eighty minutes, maybe ninety minutes tops. Um, it's extremely well produced. Obviously, the animation is great, and it's also probably my favorite score from the regular Ghibli composer Joe Hisaishi. He's an extremely talented composer. He does a lot of cool stuff in a lot of different movies. This one in particular, he draws on influences from Wagner in it, like uh, The Ride of the Valkyries, which you'd recognize from any movie set in Vietnam. Uh, You can hear bits of it in Ponyo for a very interesting reason about how the story, which lends itself to Little Mermaid, also lends itself to the story from Wagner's operas. Mm. But uh, anyway, a, a long and rambling chant just to say... Ponyo is great, and if you've been putting it off as a Ghibli fan, go check it out. I have not seen Ponyo, so I'll also add that to my list. Look at us just giving each other recommendations this week. I know, right? It's like we yeah. never talk to each other yeah, except on the podcast. Talk about movies. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's another episode in the bag. Thank you very much for listening to the Single Serving Cinema Podcast.